G'day, everyone. Quick message before we start. What we're trying to do with this podcast is to help people better understand their mind and how it works and give people practical strategies they can use to maintain and improve their mental health. Would you consider helping us to continue to do that with a financial contribution, large or small? If so, thank you. Just follow the link in the show notes. All donations, $2 or more, are tax deductible. Hello, welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works and mental illness and mental health. I'm with Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. We did an app recently on how we control our emotions, and this one is about losing control. Can those with a mental illness sometimes be said to be not in control of their actions? Can those without a mental illness, sometimes also lose control and do something that later they can't explain or understand, like like be violent, a moment of madness that might haunt them for years. Uh, most of us feel more or less in control most of the time. How do we lose control? So how did you ever gain control? Ooh, uh, Is I, a three-year-old... Yeah. Got any three-year-olds in your life? i got a few grandchildren in my life. Got any three-year-olds in your life? Are they in control? Um, they're, they're partially, partially. I would say, yeah, they're motivated by, you know, the need for food, fun, uh, love. So, so they, they got follow some, those. They, like most of the animal world, they got some primary drives. Yes. They got desire. We've got desires. They got wants. Mm. I want food. I want affection. I want the bright, shiny thing. I want the paddle pop. And their behaviour consequently just drives towards that. Yes. And if they don't get it? Uh, they get upset. And seen any decent tantrums? Oh, yeah. I love a good temper tantrum. Definitely. <laughs> oh, so they lose. Well, you have can either Have they lost control or they or, never had it? Yeah. They, have they lost control or are they manipulating their parents so they get what they want? Or at least, you know, trying to do something that brings attention to their distress. I'd suggest the latter is a learnt consequent. When you see it's repeated over and over and over, you get the idea that, you know, they've learnt. <laughs> yeah. If I do that, the chance that I'll get what I want increases. Is increases. But that's a kind of learnt bit. Okay. The loss the when you talk about we talk about loss of control, I want to go to where did control come from in the first place? Which is a brain developmental issue. Yes. You've got desires, which are emotional, which are primary drives, shared with most other animals. You know, lion wants to eat something, lion goes and kills something and eats it. Yep. <laughs> Goal directed. <laughs> Humans, and, and primates, of course, more sophisticated animals, grow when and where and how. So brain development is a process of those contextual environmental factors overriding the emotional drive for something. It happens over development. Okay. So three-year-old, temper tantrums, what do you expect of a six-year-old? What do you expect of a nine-year-old? What do you expect of a 14-year-old? Brain's continuously developing, you know. Stuff. More control. More control. Less More, tantrums. Yeah, the brain development actually, the development of the brain is actually development, if in a funny way, of inhibitory pathways, of stop buttons, not of go buttons. If you like, okay. you're born with all the green buttons on. <laughs> Just right. go. You know, find what you food, learn, find find food, find affection, find safety, find warmth, meet 
the immediate desire, go, go out, get it, right. job done. So, for example, you walk into a shop, you see a chocolate bar, your your green button is to grab it, and then, but we've learned that doing that is a crime, and so we go and pay for it. Got it. Three-year-old at the checkout, picks up the chocolate, eats it. Yeah. What's the problem? <laughs> <laughs> Parent there giving long explanation <laughs> as to why in the civilized world can't just take it off the shelf and gobble it down. And all the brain development is like that. It's actually setting up the inhibitory pathways, the stop buttons that override the primary desires. Now, I raise this because if that's how it happens, you're asking the reverse. When can you lose it? Yeah. So are there illness situations? Are there things in the brain due to illness or injury or change to brain function that cause you to lose control? Yes. So start with some obvious ones. Head injury. Now, it's the front part of the brain. It's the frontal lobes and its connections with these. So so the cortical frontal bit, it's all the stop buttons. <laughs> oh, shouldn't really do that here. Possibly could do that in another setting, but not right now. And then not right now, and that would have consequences, all that kind of, you know, thinking bit. I won't eat till this evening. I won't walk around naked until I get home. Puts the context in. Yeah. If you damage that, if that's damaged, then you can lose control. Right. Also, the control is not just over the behavior. It's a turning down of the tone of the emotionality. Meaning? The rage, the desire. Yes, you're less emotional about it. When you're thinking about it, deciding to do elsewhere, you've got the urge, you know, I want to eat now. (laughs) I want to run around naked now. I want to scream now. But I'll wait till the meeting's over and I'll walk outside and then (laughs) I'll scream. (laughs) Yeah. You're turning them, the, the, the cognition isn't just stopping the behavior. It's turning the emotional tone down. It's turning the gas down right. on the emotional flame. Yeah. And postponing to it. Well, there's two things. I mean, I think being in a frustrating meeting is a great example because we're not, if I'm ever in one of them. Ever? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not in nearly as many as you, thank goodness. Uh, I feel two things. One, frustration, irritation, the desire to stand up and you know, speak my truth about what I think is happening and all the crap that's been going on. And secondly, the day of regulating all that and sitting there and smiling because that's, you know, what is expected of me. It's what is required for our social groups to function. Yeah, exactly. If everyone just got up and yelled and screamed and started throwing coffee cups across the room in every university meeting I was in, we wouldn't get very far. (laughs) So it's absolutely necessary for societies to function, complex societies to function, to have that capacity, frontal lobe capacity, to turn the emotion down, to behave appropriately at the time and take out to another place. So that's a quite sophisticated piece of equipment. If you go damage it, so the one I'm going to use right off is frontal lobe injury. Go crash your car, bang your head up. People have had frontal lobe injuries. Don't. They can't do that anymore. They lose control. They're easily frustrated. They easily lash out. They've lost that control. Some people say they've become more childlike or they've gone back to like dealing with a six-year-old. Yeah. It can happen in association with dementia later in life if frontal lobes deteriorate. You can turn your frontal lobes off with alcohol. <laughs> you can disconnect them. Well, you can't turn them off, can't, can you? If they're normally at a 10, you can – every drink maybe reduces them a bit, a nine, an eight, a seven, a six. But can can someone – so, so certainly the law recognises that in, insanity can be a total defence, that you're not in control. But but it doesn't recognise that being super drunk can be. Uh, and 
But that's a bit of a social judgment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But I don't know if you can – do you think someone who is super drunk – you know, we get these stories filtering in from Bali now and again, don't we, that someone's on holidays and they drink heaps and maybe take some drugs uh, and then do something and end up, you know, doing something terrible at a temple or something and end up in jail in Bali. And they wake up the next morning and you just see these photos of these bewildered people thinking, what did I do? Are they – so they're certainly disinhibited. Let's say there are states of intoxication. I mean, whether it's alcohol alone or other substances, rather than getting into can alcohol alone do it, let's say there are states of intoxication. Yeah. There are states of turning down frontal lobe function where you can more or less get to a point where it's not on. Okay. Well, let me give you this example. While While still doing other things. I think the point is without being asleep. So the person's still up doing things. They're not unconscious. Yeah. When I was at university, I occasionally got drunk. Oh, and it would kidding. often be with a similar group of people. And there would always be one or two who you knew if we all had X beers, they would be the ones that were most likely to do something incredibly stupid that they would regret. We all did things that were stupid sometimes, but they were the ones that might go a bit further. So I guess my question is, if I get super off my face – is it just a lottery if I totally lose control and do something that might, you know, ruin my life, for example? Or is it something predictable given? Like we could predict who it would be. It's gonna, He's the guy we've got to watch out for if we all do exactly the same thing. So you've just hit one of my favourite topics, mm. individual differences. Yeah, yeah. Same exposure, same alcohol, some people you know, and you know it's going to be the same bloke who's going to lose it after whatever it is, six drinks, and he's yeah. going to go and, you know, he's going to be riding on top of a car, he's going to be jumping off something, he's going to be yelling at policemen. He's going to lose all judgment. So his frontal lobes have been turned down more than mine. Yeah, so to take this very sort of uh, neuroanatomical approach mm. to it, okay, or this sort of brain circuitry approach, what I'd love to be able to do is put you in the scanner and put him in the scanner. Yes. <laughs> and see whether yours... And feed us beer. And see what happens. beer, watch what happens, and see whether your brain circuitry, yeah. you know, for the same dose, or yours is just better. You know, yours is developed. You're, you're a higher evolved thing. <laughs> you got brain circuitry well, that, that continues to function. Yeah. There, there is just- There are individual differences. But maybe if he had eight beers, but then if I had 13 beers, I might be at the same point as him. Yes, but you might have- more mature pathways. Your pathways for controlling your They weren't very mature back then, I'm telling you. <laughs> teenagers, we're well aware. Yeah. Well, it's very important. The most important thing that happens during teenage years, young men, please pay attention, is the development of what they call these uh, cortical, subcortical pathways. It is these literal connections, white matter cable connections between the frontal lobes and these emotional centres to turn them down. And it's slower for you boys than it is for girls, right? <laughs> it, yes, it's happening. It will happen for most. It's just going to take a little while. It just yeah. takes a bit longer. Puberty and, started later. And that is when they are in a very dangerous period of their life. Because so they have the cables. Adults, in inverted commas. <laughs> they're but, big. Mm. They're large. They can get into a lot of trouble. They can yeah. reproduce themselves. They, they can, can do all sorts of things. They can drink alcohol. They can and drive they can, a car. And if these, these, this cabling system isn't very well developed and then you go and put in stuff that, that turns down the function of that cabling system. Now, of course, there is this individual variation is really, really important. I mean, you can see nine-year-olds who are quite mature in a lot of these things, and you can see 18-year-olds who are quite not. 
Yeah. So there's a huge, huge variation. So I would literally love to be able to see, like for every other body organ we can see, how good your heart is, how good your, your lungs are. I'd love to be able to see how good people's frontal lobe functioning was in, in regulating exactly what we're talking about. Now, you lawyers one day might have to come to terms with this. In fact, the Supreme Court in the US has tried to deal with this. Really, really difficult because, you know, they've got this thing where they put people to death at a certain age if they've committed certain crimes. And the mitigating thing that's often raised is, well, his brain wasn't really working or his brain had not developed or he doesn't have these pathways. So it would have been unreasonable. Mm. So this, this brain imaging has been dragged into the Supreme Court in the US for exactly this reason. Unresolved, I might say, because the testing ain't that good. And we still want to hold people criminally responsible for the act. We still want to say the act is bad, yeah. no matter what the motivation. We don't want to kill them. Jesus. Well, we don't, but other societies do all the well, time. They do, yeah. Okay. I mean, you know, we, just being a small part of the world, yeah. don't think that's a good idea. Mm. But also, we maintain the guilty mind kind of concept. You really should have meant it. And you should have had the capacity to stop it. So, good time to read the legal definition. This is how you can be found not guilty of a crime, any crime, including murder, by reason of insanity. It doesn't mean you get to walk it, walk out in the street. It means you normally you are committed to an institution. But the law recognises insanity as a full defence to committing a crime if at the time the person had a mental health or cognitive impairment that meant they didn't know the nature and quality of the act or they didn't know it was wrong. That is, you didn't know you were stabbing someone, or you knew you were stabbing someone, but you didn't know that that was wrong. So the wrong is an interesting thing itself. Yeah. Because it's a moral judgment. People believe that they're doing the right thing. Yeah, I'm killing I'm trying to stab him because he's the devil and he's going to destroy the world. He was going to kill my family. Yeah. I'm entitled to defend myself. Mm. He is the source of all evil. Mm. I have developed... In this case, a delusional idea about him, I'm entitled to kill him. Now, the law has always said, hang on a sec, <laughs> that's not really what we're trying to punish. That's not really – the person has lost control of reality. Yeah. That is not really the situation. And their intention was never to commit a crime. Yeah, they've got an illness. They might be schizophrenia. Explained or... by brain injury, the cognitive one, like brain injury, or the illness one, like a psychotic illness, like schizophrenia, and therefore – we, we still disapprove of the act. There are still consequences, but we don't hold the person to be criminally responsible because the, the machinery we assume underpins all this isn't working. And, and our own thing, normally when that, when that defence is made out, you're found not guilty by reason of insanity, but then you're committed to a psychiatric institution for an indeterminate time until they think it's appropriate to release. Yeah, so the idea in the mental illness one is it's a treat, potentially treatable and you'll potentially recover. Mm. At the point you recover, you'll say, oh, my God, what have I done? This is a terrible thing. But it was never my intention. Yeah. The brain injury one, the cognitive impairment one, is kind of harder in some ways because you're sort of saying the machinery's gone due to head injury, due to dementia. The, the temporary one, the intoxication ones for the law – more difficult for the reason you said, well, to what degree? But also, intoxication is kind of voluntary. <laughs> That's right. You went out, you got pissed, and then you did it. Like, and, you actually, you took the risk. Yeah. You had and, the and, machinery, and you made a bad decision, you made it worse. I, I would say there are strong arguments that we are less responsible. You know, if I 
if we had an argument and I punched you when I was drunk, I'm less responsible than if I did it stone cold sober. But as a society, well, lawmakers have made a policy decision that you are to be treated as equally responsible whether you're drunk or sober. And I presume that is supposed to act as a disincentive to get drunk to the extent where you're going to lose control. Yeah. Hmm. Truth being, if you don't normally do the, anything like that, but you were very intoxicated, as a consequence of being intoxicated, the frontal lobe bits, which normally regulate a lot of this stuff, will be less effective. Were less effective. They were they were not functioning in their normal yeah. way, and you would not consider it a normal part of your day yes. to behave that way. Yes. Then we tend to be forgiving. Well, we, we under, it, we're understanding. Sorry, we're not forgiving in the law. Yeah. We appreciate that's not really what you are. We are in everyday life, yes. Yeah. Legally, no. No, that's right. Whereas we are, if someone just, you know, really just decides to punch you, <laughs> just I, so that's an okay thing to do. Well, it would imagine this one of your friends punches you, it would cause a greater rift if they were sober. I think, than if they were drunk. You, everyone looks for an explanation that can preserve things. Oh, you were drunk, you'd had a terrible day. Exactly. Um, exactly. But if they were sober, what the, what the hell, man? But it is just – let's take the stone-cold sober situation because I think this is also very interesting in terms of individual differences. I mean, I think it's very unlikely, James. You and I can have an argument, but I think it's pretty unlikely we're going to come to fisticuffs. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not so we might, sure. We might, have, we might get a little bit worked up if we disagree. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there's other people you know. Do you know? You think, mm. you know, they're the sort of people I really don't like to argue with because they're just as likely to throw a punch. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like those kind of people much. People who seem to get angry pretty quickly. But it's kind of, it, I find it interesting that, that they do lose, do they lose control? Is there loss of control? Is there well, anger? Anger. Okay, so I reckon most of us could imagine an incident in our life where we've got really angry. Yep. And maybe we haven't punched someone. But geez, it felt like it. Maybe we've shouted at them. Yep. You know, a, a partner said something nasty. A kid. You know, kid's been winding you up for yep. three hours and yep. for two hours and fifty nine minutes. Yep. You're really patient and really da da. Then you go. And are you the sort of person then that storms out, closes, slams the door and, you know, doesn't cause harm to others or are you the sort of person who punches the person who was upsetting you? I'm disappointed you have to ask that. <laughs> I think I know the answer. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll storm out and then I'll feel what like What about the people who do throw the punch? Absolute dickhead for 24 hours. Yeah, um, right. So you've got – Which so is I'm good. going with – I'm going with – you've got frontal lobes that are very well developed. <laughs> no, but you're, you're right. You're so frustrated. Well, you still want to take an action but, but I sometimes don't. think what if on one occasion – you know what? I mean, people must think, and there must be people who 99 times they've stormed out and they've let their anger dissipate and they felt terrible. And then once they've done something bad and that haunts them for years. So they feel There's terrible. huge consequences. So it's so not them. On the one occasion. But can that happen? Yes. On the one occasion, the emotionality has overwhelmed their inhibitory, their stop buttons. On the one occasion. But 99 times out of 100. They are not. Yeah. What about the people who throw a punch 99 times out of 100? Yeah. What about In what them? way are they different? Well, I guess by way of probably being in jail. <laughs> <laughs> so, so from you a brain science point of view, it's kind of interesting. I Here's the variation. Here's the variation. Some people, well, it's their frontal lobes, isn't it? Well, Smaller. so I'm kind of going with – Less effective. <laughs> um, less effective. The, the, regulatory, the regulatory mechanism – 
Because really, throwing punches and hurting people isn't very socially acceptable. No, agreed. Okay, it's quite dysfunctional in our world. And if you do it a lot, you will end up in jail. Yeah. And, you know, let's assume that people don't intend to do that. Yeah. But they just, they very quickly, their emotionality, their frustration leads to very violent, very antisocial outbursts. Yeah. Then people like me are thinking, well, are they just really just very unpleasant people? Or are they wired differently? You know, this control over emotion, yeah. which we consider to be so sort of voluntary. The law kind of says we're all the same. We all have an equal capacity to control this stuff. Yeah, we don't. We don't. <laughs> and and they might feel, those people might, even if it doesn't become something where there's a huge consequence, you know, where the police are called or whatever, like an hour later they might be going, oh, my God, I did it again. Why, why did that happen? I, I don't know what happened. Replaying it in their head thinking, what were the secret? you know, where did I just lose it? Yeah, I hope they are thinking about it like that. Yeah. But even if they're not, to see it repeated, you are the sort of person who loses it very quickly hmm. with colleagues, with friends, with kids in social situations. You are the one who doesn't just fume and leave. You're not the one who takes a while and then eventually slams and leaves and swears hmm. outside. You are the one who throws a punch or overreacts and creates a scene and you do it repeatedly. Yeah. Can you see that repeated pattern of behaviour? Can you see it's the welling up of emotion? Now, this comes out, you know, <laughs> the classic films, you know, and things, popular culture, anger management. Mm. The people who got a short fuse. Right. The loss of control. Mm. Not due to illness, not due to intoxication, not due to brain damage. Yeah. But just characteristically... Easily roused, so the emotional flame goes up quickly. Somehow the burner goes on, yeah. gets hot, and then overrides clearly the normal social inhibition to not do that. So we've talked about strategies to control that in a recent episode, how we control our emotions. So I'd maybe listen to that for the strategies, yeah? Well, this – because you raised the issue about the control bit. First of all, it's re realisation. Yeah, that's right. I go from cold to hot. Quickly. Really quickly. The what can I do to slow that? Yeah. What are the early warnings? Well, am I even aware of the emotionality? People I've met who can be a bit like this, interestingly, often deny it. Oh, okay. But there's a lot no, of- No, it's justified. He did a real- You don't realise how- You know, they start talking like that. But there's a lot of shame. I mean, people- You know, when I was a criminal lawyer, mm -hmm. the people would never, or very rarely- admit they committed a domestic violence offence, they would say, I just want to plead guilty. And you, and you say, well, pleading guilty means you're admitting the offence. Are you admitting the offence? No, well, you can't plead guilty. Um, and and then, you know, eventually they kind of mumble something. But And it wasn't because, you know, they wanted to plead guilty. They, there was evidence against them. They wanted to get it dealt with and not go to court. But they were too ashamed to tell even me that, yes, I hit my wife. So domestic violence, and I mean intrafamilial violence, that's when it's out in the public domain. Yeah. But clearly it goes on, yeah, sadly, yeah. a lot. You might have to elaborate on the legal things yeah. here. But let's, I'm assuming there are people who didn't just do it once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They might have got caught once yeah. or somebody might have finally taken it, and then it's in the public domain and then shame and yeah. comes into play. 
But I'm sure that shame would play out even the next day, you know, if the police weren't involved. What'd you Maybe, think? But, but in those situations where people are frequently in very heated mm. and at times very aggressive and at times violent interactions with people that they are in close relationships with, how often do they stop and think, uh, um, it's me? Like my short temper, my fuse. Well, I'm sure some I, people do. I mean, because let's, let's, let's – if any of us live with anybody, yeah, I think it would be fair to say there are moments of tension. Yeah. <laughs> there are moments of frustration. Sure. <laughs> There's stuff that happens most days, most weeks. Yeah. That could be the source of – I mean, not in my relationship, but I've heard that in other people's <laughs> I've heard. That's that's thing. Right. Yeah. I've heard that this apparently can happen. So I think we're all aware – of, of emotional kind of triggers and the extent to which something winds us up and we're reacting to it. But people who've got a repeated pattern of getting hot very quickly and then losing the plot and then lashing out, at least in the world that comes across mine, they frequently blame others. Yeah. Oh, you don't really understand how difficult my wife, stroke kids, stroke work people really are. You go, really? And um, do you think there's anything about you that um, – yeah. Do you think you might have a short fuse? Do you think you're a bit hot-tempered? You're a bit sort of quick? Yeah, right. Because the realisation that the, the time frame problem here is short. If you yes. go from cold to very hot and then to lashing out very quickly, you've got to be aware of that. Yeah, that's right. As, as we often say, awareness is the first step. And of what it is that triggers you, if you like, or provokes you. Like what is it that sets you off? Yeah. What really gets under your skin? Do you ever think about that? What really gets under your skin? Which bits really mm. – now, for, you know, all I'm suggesting is there are, there are often in uh, personal relationships and close family and intimate things, things that uh, quickly set people off. Yeah, so so, so, so yeah, recognising and getting a bit – Preventive here. Yeah. Can't afford to be in that situation. Don't, yeah. It's very, the, the early. I'm going to lose it in that situation so fairly I'm early. I'm going to not be there. I'm going to get out of that early. So the awareness bit and the awareness, and I think with the assistance, this is where, again, I think the assistance of others is quite helpful. Yeah. Do you like to be told that? <laughs> no. You're a bit short tempered. You're a bit, whatever. You tend to, you tend to lose it. But I mean, if people are going to change their behavior, if people are going to kind of come to terms with this, then you need that kind of feedback. Definitely, definitely. Getting in control of it. Let me ask you this. Are those with – so we've talked about how someone with psychosis, with schizophrenia, might be considered to be less in control of their actions even, and the law recognises that. Are those with depression and anxiety less in control than other people if they chuck a plate against the wall and say, it's not my fault, it's the illness? Is that, to a degree, fair enough? To a degree. Yeah. So any emotional disturbance, because what we're talking about here is the emotional flame that's sitting underneath all yeah. of this. So if the emotional flame is perturbed in its normal function. We're so going to behave differently. You're going to behave differently. Yeah. So to a degree, with significant depression or anxiety, you can, yeah, see this bit where emotion then overrides normal control or, or it's contributing in a way that it wouldn't normally. And And so if someone – has, you know, and you see, you see outbursts. I mean, most of the outbursts in depression, and anxiety are not against others; they're against self. Mm. They're actually play out and being critical of oneself, or, or dissolving into tears and 
you know, not causing harm to others, but certainly losing control. And when we're talking about anger, what we're talking about is feeling the emotion, you know, we're having an argument, but then disconnecting that from an act that is going to hurt someone else. Yes. So can people with anxiety and depression who have that perturbed emotional state be still be or learn to control it so that whilst they will be upset and perturbed and feel bad, that they don't do things that are going to upset, you know, other people they live with, for example, or other people they are with in, the, in their world. Can they yes, too learn to they disconnect? Can. They but can. It's well, not well, easy. Well, well, two bits. First, first, treat the depression or anxiety. If you can not be in that state, that would be good. Yeah. But even because often people are in that state, or they relapse into that state, or it continues on. So often people who have chronic depression or chronic anxiety do learn things like that. That it's me, and therefore I've got to limit the consequence for others. Yes. It's my emotional world which is distorting this and causing adverse interactions with others, causing distress to others, and I need to moderate that. And how do they learn to do that, given that emotions are so powerful? Not easy. Not easy. Yeah. That's a learning bit. I've heard some great stories. In fact, I've heard a great story recently about a person with a cognitive therapy for a psychotic illness who was learning that the odd thoughts and the way they were affecting the world, but they were no, come to the realisation it was the oddness that they were feeling that was driving the thoughts, that was driving the actions. Right. Quite complex. Yeah. And and quite a lot of reflection. Yeah. Hard to do when you're in a perturbed emotional state. <laughs> now, you're in that perturbed emotional state, and I'd like you to think through this really complex mm. idea. Yeah. And then I'd like you to hold that idea even though you're feeling awful. Yeah. But, and I think this is where a lot of uh, cognitive kind of approaches with people with quite severe things, people who are hearing voices, people with quite severe depressive disorders, et cetera, et cetera often do over time, know that they've got to have other strategies to limit the harm to others. Mm. And, and other things that matter in their world, relationships with their family and friends and others, which will be further ruined or messed up if they cannot limit the liability yeah. <laughs> of their emotionality on their actions and the way they're affecting others. Boy, that's a complicated But I wonder if even sequence. that can go wrong, if someone, if someone learns to do that, okay, I'm not going to go and take it out on – my family, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna cut myself with a, you know, self harm. So ninety percent of the time, in depression, and anxiety, the harm is to self. Yeah, but there are often indirect consequences to others. One of the problems with depression, and anxiety, is being self preoccupied. Right, is being lost in your own world. So you're often unaware. Yeah. So I hear well, it's a lot. harder to be empathetic, isn't it? Yeah, I hear a lot from. Uh, families, intimate partners of others, of someone who is chronically depressed, the extent to which they've become detached or insensitive. Yeah. They stop reacting too because the other person's reaction all the time is so abnormal. So while originally they were sympathetic and involved and responding, they've stopped responding, which often turns around then to a weird kind of criticism for the person who's depressed to say, well, they no longer care about me. It's their fault. They're not responding. You know, if only they responded more, I wouldn't be like this. And you go, hang on Wait, a second. Who's hang saying on. that to who? So the depressed person says to yes. their intimate partner or their family yeah. or somebody else, it's their fault. Oh, right. If they only reacted properly, I wouldn't be this way. Right. They've stopped reacting. Right. But actually those people have started to protect – those people have sort of learned it doesn't matter what they do. 
They can never do the right thing. So, so the person who's depressed stops interacting emotionally with the world. Their partner thinks, well, it's not much point me coming in and saying, do you want to go for a walk? Because I'll say no in a very blank well, face way. Well, off. Yeah. And then the depressed person thinks they don't care about me because they don't come in and ask me if I Correct. want to go for a walk. Correct. And, and naturally when people – People, well, we've talked about this before. No one wants to talk to the depressed person in the at, at the party, um, and even at home, people think, "Oh, do I really want to put myself through it again?" Back in the days when I used to do a lot of marital therapy sort of stuff, and I don't anymore. I just want people to know that. Um, <laughs> you know, two people sitting in my office. One's depressed. The others, the others, not reacting. Now, if you walk in, it's like walking in at you know Act Four, <laughs> right. five act thing. Yeah, and you go, "Well, that person's depressed, and that person's not reacting." And that, uh, and the person who's not reacting is also a bit critical. They're actually saying some critical things, and the person who's depressed is saying really horrible things about their partner. And but you've joined the, you've joined the play at Act Four. So each, what each is saying at this stage is true. The the partner's yes. overcritical and is non-reactive. The per, the partner's saying, but oh god, they're hard to live with, and they criticise me all the time, and I can never do the right thing. They're dragging me down. They're dragging me down. I don't and want I'm to just, be depressed. And too. I'm just trying to. I'm just trying to live my life. I'm supportive. It's not that I'm not supportive. I am, but you know, at this point, there's a limit. There's a limit. It's down. Yeah, you know, we're just, I, you know, finding it hard to live in this particular place. I'm not sure we can continue to cohabit like this. Crisis. This is usually in uh, my previous life at yeah. marital therapy for depression. This is usually where I've joined the play, Act Four. Then somebody's got to go. Mm, can we just back up a little bit? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> How did we get here? Yeah. What were things like before all this? You know, we didn't get here. We didn't arrive here. There's been a sequence of abnormal interactions driven by person with depression's behaviour, the people's initial response, what didn't work, and now where we find ourselves. So often you find families and you find couples in a really difficult place when this has been going on for a long time. Yeah. That's hard to unpick. So when we go back to the – what we're talking about in this episode, control. Yeah, what were we talking about? If, if, if you got a cold or the flu or even COVID, you can't control your nose running. You can't control your throat being sore. You know, other people will get really irritated. You keep coughing. If you keep coughing, but you can't control that. But that doesn't stop them getting irritated. And it's a little bit like that perhaps, that when you are de uh, depressed or anxious, you will not be able to control that your interaction with the rest of the world is somewhat different, but other people won't be able to control the fact that it's really irritating. But you need to know that. The coughing example is a good one. Yeah. If you're sitting in the opera house watching the symphony orchestra with a cold, <laughs> coughing, and the people around you are rather irritated. Yeah. You can't stop yourself coughing. That's right. But you understand why they're irritated. Yeah. Like. Yeah, that's right. We can understand both sets of points but of view. Maybe if you're depressed, you can if you got a if you got a cold, but maybe you can't if you're depressed because your empathy is also effective. Well, and your, your perspective your perspective is distorted. Yes, that's true. Mm. So this is the, the and this is why going back to your original uh, legal thing, we all understand that, and even the law makes allowance for the fact that the normal the normal contingencies are not operative here. Our normal assumptions don't operate. Mm. That's something, at least in one party, the person who's depressed or the person who has brain injury or is intoxicated, their normal processes of control, the normal interaction between their emotionality and their behaviours is impaired at this point Yeah. in time. So then, and possibly final question, you're living with someone who's depressed, right? 
They're doing all that, giving you nothing. It's really irritating. They're behaving in a way that they don't normally and it's making your life harder. Do you say to yourself, this is outside their control and I've just got to suck it up and do what I can? Or do you say to yourself, it's harder for them to be nicer to people, but it's not impossible and I'm going to keep reminding them that, uh, you know, I, I can only treat them as kind of as well as they treat me to a degree. So, both things are true. What I love. I just want a simple yes or no answer. Oh no! What I love. What do I? My only significant contribution when I was doing that marital therapy thing in the past was to be the third party. Yeah. Was to was to affirm that there was truth on both sides. Yes. Yes. Because often people got to a point of conflict where, because the other can't see their point of view, it's really annoying. It's really frustrating. So the depressed person is very frustrated with their partner or family. The partner or family is very frustrated with the depressed person. Yes. <laughs> My role, you know, blue, blue Beret, United Nations down the middle. <laughs> now, look, it's clear. There's truth on both sides here. Yes. It is very hard when you're depressed to res- respond normally and to see things and you get things out of proportion. And as a consequence of that, that's true, but it also has consequences. It is hard to live with. Yes. And it does result in unrealistic expectations of the others. And the others have tried 20 times. They've done everything they possibly could. But until the depression bits of the illness is under control, it's very hard for people to all behave normally with each other. Yeah. On the other side of the coin, you know, when the family or the partner is frustrated for the 115th time with the same problem, <laughs> they have withdrawn. Now it is struggling. And, and, and you know, empathy has gone out the window for just how hard it is to be in that. Mm. Situation. So I right here most commonly fed back by people in those marital therapy situations. Jesus was nice to have someone say, "There's truth on both sides." Yeah, right. That they're, 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 we're, we're, in other words, we're all in a situation that is abnormal, that's challenging for all of us. Got and it really is challenging for all of us. It's not just challenging for the person who's depressed. It's challenging for those people who care and are involved. And can you see? Can you all still see? What's going on here? Yeah. Or because in the marital therapy situation, often what follows next is separation, divorce, whatever. Like people just can't can't continue. We want to do an episode on um, conflict resolution soon. On how oh, to do have, we have a good argument? <laughs> well, I do. Um, <laughs> oh, really oh, excellent. Interesting. Can we can we can we agree about something to argue about in advance? Yeah, but hopefully, I mean, I presume one of the principles from that, which is relevant here, is try and stand in the other person. Can you see? Yeah, can you see, see their predicament? From, yeah. Can you see their predicament? Can you help each other to see it from the other's point of view? Yeah. Rather than just, you should see it from my point of view. Yeah. You should do what I want. <laughs> yeah. Could you perhaps just see it a bit from my point of view? Yeah. And probably if one person starts to do that and and gives the other person the message, then the other person will be prompted to do this. Yeah, so here's the happy hopefully. here's the happy bit of this. Yeah. In situations where people had pre-existing good relationships, good marriages, good families, whatever else, that often isn't too far away. Yeah. What you sometimes find out, of course, m- much more marital than family, is sometimes the relationship wasn't that good to start with. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's for another time. That is for another time. Cliffhanger ending. If you've got any questions, comments, want to suggest further topics for us, please send us an email at mindingyourmind2, numeral 2 at gmail.com. The book, Minding Your Mind, is out and our podcast is supported by the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help's available from Headspace, 
Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them or you can call Lifeline on 13 1114.